0: This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Would you join me in a word of prayer? God, it says in your word that faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. In other words, what good is it to hear If it is not the word of Christ. May that word be preached so that the faith of your people will be built today. May that word be preached so that those who don't know the word of Christ might hear it and might come to know it. May you add to your number and to those whose names be found in the Lamb's book of life. We talk about what it means and the challenges that will often face us in our lives now, here on this earth, after the cross of Jesus, but before the completion of all things. Pray that you will strengthen me for the work, and I pray that you will open our ears to hear. May there be more of you, less of me. And may the word of Christ dwell richly in our hearts. We pray in his name. Amen. We've been studying the book of Nehemiah. We find ourselves in chapter six this morning. It's a little bit of a middle part of Nehemiah. I'll tell you why in just a moment. But Nehemiah, in general, is the historical record, it's a historical book. It's the historical record of God's call on its central figure, a man named Nehemiah, to lead a rebuilding effort in the city of Jerusalem. There are a lot of cities in the Bible. Babylon is a great city. It was a great city in the ancient Near Eastern world. Babylon it is found throughout the Bible, and sometimes when it says Babylon, it means the city. and other times, it's such a prominent city that it actually stands in for idolatry and paganism and the things that oppose God. Earlier in the book of Nehemiah, we learn a little bit, just a little bit, about the city Susa. That's where the book starts. It's the capital of Persia. There are cities in Egypt. There are cities all over the Middle East, what we call the Middle East today, but undeniably the most important city, the central city in the Bible is Jerusalem. And did you know there are actually two Jerusalems mentioned in the Bible? There's this one where the walls need to be rebuilt. It has been ransacked and overtaken first by the Babylonians and the Babylonians were usurped by the Persians. So there's the first Jerusalem, And the first Jerusalem was supposed to be, God planted it as a city where his mercy and justice would reign. Jerusalem was supposed to be a city that was a light to the nations where the world could come to see and learn of Yahweh, the one true God. But the problem and the difference between the two Jerusalems mentioned in the Bible is that that only rarely happened in Jerusalem. For the most part, Jerusalem was a city filled with people whose hearts chased other things, not God. There's a second Jerusalem at the very end of the Bible called the New Jerusalem. And so the difference is in the first Jerusalem, God was only ever worshipped for brief stretches of time. But in the New Jerusalem, He will never cease to be worshipped. There won't even be a moment or a millisecond in the new Jerusalem where God will not be worshipped. And today we're going to see a lot of what life looks like between those two Jerusalems. The Jerusalem of Nehemiah's time and the Jerusalem that is to come. If you're following along with us in the story of Nehemiah, you'll know that the wall is almost finished. They had to rebuild the wall for the protection of the people so that worship could begin and so that a community could once again thrive in a city. You can't have a thriving city. Nobody will live there if it doesn't offer some protection, if there aren't some services available, if there's not some ability to gather people into the city. Actually, where we find ourselves, what you'll see in Nehemiah 6, is the wall itself is done. It's the gates that still have to be hung. And in this Jerusalem, the first Jerusalem, a wall isn't much good without its gates. You can have strong walls and no gates... And you're still just about equally exposed because there's enough gates in the wall where anybody can just rush through them. And so, put your eyes down in God's word at Nehemiah 6 and verse 1. Let me just start reading and we'll talk a little bit about the place of the first Jerusalem and the the place of the second Jerusalem. So it says there, now when Sanballat, and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm." And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? So let me just, really quick there, you see, you can sense something is coming. Nehemiah knows there's a trap, we'll get to the trap in a minute, but he can't step away because the city and the people, this fledgling community in Jerusalem is still very vulnerable. They're vulnerable physically. They have no gates, no doors in the gates. And they have very little sense of the worship and the community of God that's beginning to be reestablished there. A covenant people for God's own possession is beginning to form again there, but all of that is still very vulnerable. So Nehemiah can't leave. But now I want to read, and just listen. You don't have to turn there in your Bible. I just want you to listen to this. A couple times I'm going to ask you to do this this morning. Look at the new Jerusalem. So the little Jerusalem has some walls. They've been rebuilt, but no gates are hung, or no doors are hung in the gates, and Nehemiah can't leave. Revelation 21.10 and he carried me, the author of Revelation is the apostle of the Jesus' disciple, John. So that's who's writing. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates. And at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So just really quickly, what John is describing is an enormous city. If you tried to center this city on Chicago, it would not fit in North America. You would hit the Atlantic Ocean. Some of it would fall off of the coast if it was centered in Chicago. The only way it works for you to put it within North America is for you to center it somewhere in Nebraska... And then it would need to go all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico and all the way up into about the middle northwards into Canada. If it was on Earth now, it would take up basically our entire continent, and it's also that tall. It's a cube, a perfect cube. And so if it was sitting where it is now, it would be so tall that just about every satellite orbiting Earth would crash into it and break. And the International Space Station, where it orbits, would hit the bottom quarter of the city. It's that big. And so the next verses then tell us about its size and how it's adorned with these precious jewels and its streets are made of gold and glass. Let me jump down a few verses. John says, Then I saw no temple in the city, For its temple is the Lord God, of the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut." And there will be no night there. So let me just break down what I just said. We'll read this verse one more time. And its gates will never be shut by day. So during the day, they're not shut. And there will be no night. That's a poetic way of saying the gates are open all the time. They're open when it's daytime. And in other words, non-poetically, it's never not daytime. And the people who live there, everybody who loved Jesus, everybody who's ever loved and been saved by Jesus, have nothing to fear because they don't need to shut the gates. It has gates. It has gates adorned to show the grandeur of the city. It's a complete city, and a complete city has gates. But this city's gates don't need to function in the way an earthly city's gates would function because the people have nothing to fear. There's nothing that they are vulnerable to. There's nothing that will come against them in this city. They don't need protection because they need there's nothing they need protecting from. Not just physically. There is no sadness in the city. There is no mourning because there is no death in the city. There is no brokenness in the city. There's only peace. And there's only joy. And there's only the presence of God that reigns in the city. That's what's coming in the new Jerusalem. But it's not yet. And like the people were experiencing as the walls are finished and their gates aren't done yet, I want to talk through how we live now, where there's amazing work that's been finished. But everything's not done yet. There's a, a theological phrase that's key for us this morning. Theologians talk about the already but the not yet. How do we live right now? We're as Christians, we know that Jesus has come, He's lived, He's died and he's rose again. He's finished his work. But there is still more to come. There's still more that has yet to be done. And Nehemiah 6 is a good place to see that because as much as we would like to hope that that for the people who've placed their faith in God, that now that the city walls have been rebuilt and that people are beginning to worship God in Jerusalem again, that life would be easy, that there wouldn't be any hardship there. It's just not true. In fact, what we see in Nehemiah is pretty much the opposite. Well, a lot of work has been finished. It's still not done. And the people and we must persevere in faith, often in the midst of many hardships. Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab are trying to draw Nehemiah away from Jerusalem for two reasons. First, they want to harm him, and they need him to be away from a protected place and among a large group of people. We learned earlier that the people are ready to fight. And second, they want to distract him. What I want to do is I want to point out three ways that the, the faith of Christians will almost certainly be tried and tested in the already but not yet between the two jerusalem's the first one is distraction our faith will be subject to distraction we've already read that in the first couple of verses in nehemiah nehemiah why don't you leave the work it's almost finished you've done a great job and why don't you come to an important meeting? It's kind of a summit. We're having a, sort of a gathering of the regional rulers, the regional elites, and we're going to meet. Why don't you come out? And, you'll finish the work. Somebody else will do it. You come out and do another work. Why don't you come out and be among important people? That's what Nehemiah is being invited to. It's a type of leadership summit. Community organizers are gathering, and Nehemiah's presence is requested But his response is, I can't leave the work. Actually, if you look at your Bible and notice words, he says, I can't leave such a great work. But great is pretty relative. The wall that Nehemiah rebuilt is fairly impressive. It's eight feet wide, except that it's not nearly as impressive as when you compare it to what was there previously. The previous wall was wider taller, more sound, and more impressive to look at before it had been broken down. They're doing a work, and what they've done, it only takes 52 days to get to where they've done this far. It's pretty remarkable. But compared to the old wall, this isn't much to look at. Yet Nehemiah says the work is great. And the reason it's great is not because the wall itself is impressive. It's because it's what God has called them to do. So when it comes to persevering in faith, don't get distracted from what God has called you to do. Here's the thing. Distraction almost always comes and begins in subtle, small ways. I am not at all worried that I will leave here today Go someplace else. Be approached in the parking lot by somebody who says, "Hey, we're going to go rob a bank. Do you want to get in the car and come with us to rob the bank?" And I don't know if I'm going to go. You know, I'm kind of hungry for lunch, and Holly will probably be mad, and maybe we'll go to jail. This is tough. I'm not. I'm not tempted by that. I'm not tempted to rob a bank. But you know what is tempting for me is to begin to feel like if I just had a little bit more money, my sense of security would grow. I'll begin to find a little bit more of my meaning and my worth in that. Now there's a real possibility for distraction. It might not be that I'm going to go rob a bank and try to get a ton, but maybe I could just a little bit think, I just need a little bit, my life would be better if I just had a little bit more money. And if I'm not careful, just this, this is me, I can begin to see ministry then. Because this is how I make my living. And that's biblical. A laborer should be paid the wages for his work. It's biblical that I'm paid to do this. But I can then begin to see ministry not as a way to walk in what God has for me. And once I'm doing that, once once I become distracted, then how I preach and how I lead and how I shepherd is going to change because I'm not asking what does God call of me and what does his word say to me. I'm asking how can I keep my job and how maybe even can I go find a better one that pays more. If my worth and value is in money, it will distract me from the calling on which God has placed on my life. And then I'm less of a pastor and more of some kind of a Christian mercenary. Not missionary, mercenary. And the same thing can happen for you. Listen, if Ephesians 2 and Titus 2 are both clear. They say that God prepares good works in advance for all the people who love him to walk in. I don't believe it's any more spiritual or Christian of a work to be a pastor or a Christian worker than to simply be every Christian walking in the good work that God has prepared in advance for you. And so it's not just pastors who need to be careful of money. It's every christian who needs to be careful of money because you can't serve two masters god and money so everything i just said applies to you too money can be an easy distraction i could do this with a lot of different things too i just picked money we could do marriage and parenting i could do your your gifts and your passions we could do your home we could do your neighborhood i could do all kinds of things with this that if we're not careful, we can be distracted, and distraction often starts and comes in small and subtle ways, not in big things. The second way we must persevere in faith is in the midst of derision. I'm sorry, these are all D's this morning. Sometimes it just, I can't help it, it just like comes out like that, and it's kind of nerdy, I know, but it's it's just the way my mind works. These are all D's. The second, so the, the second way that we must persevere in faith is in the midst of derision, verse four, in Nehemiah. Look at this, and they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and this is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports, King Artaxerxes of Persia. So now come and let us take counsel together. Again, hey, there's a lot of rumors that you're trying to take over. We can help you. Come on out. And in fact, you'll look Where are the rumors coming from? We're spreading the rumors. We're spreading the rumors. Then I sent to him saying, No such thing as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will be done, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. So their plan is they are going to lie about and slander Nehemiah. And what's worse is they're going to do it not just to regular people, they're going to do it to the king who if, if he believes what is being said, he's going to send an army and he's, going to, and he's going to crush the peasants in Jerusalem. So what does Nehemiah do when he is derided? Two things. He directly denies it and then he prays. Strengthen my hands. In other words, God, help us finish the project strong, When you are slandered, that's usually all you can do, and I can't tell you this in absolutely every situation, but I can tell you for almost all of them, to just directly deny it is fine, and then to pray is all you should do in almost every situation where you are slandered. Here's what happens when you're slandered and you do more than that. Normally what we will do when somebody says something that's not true about us is we will get angry, and we will get defensive, and then we will get aggressive. Our aggressiveness will come out in the words we say, our actions, maybe we'll just get all tied up in knots inside. But here's why you shouldn't do that. First, if you get angry and begin to slander back, which is our Often natural and first tenancy, The first reason you shouldn't do that is you're sinning. That's sin. Let's just be clear. Ephesians 4:31 says, "Don't." It says, "Put away all slander." It doesn't say, "Put away all slander," unless you have been slandered. And in that case, we'll absolutely just let them have it. That's not what Ephesians 4:31 says. If you, regardless of whether you have had accusations brought against you, if you begin to hurl accusations against other people, you are sinning. And then second, usually what happens is if somebody's upset and they say something that's not true or mean-spirited about you, and you hear it, and you start hurling accusations right back, everybody else who's caught up in it, everybody else who's watching, really has a hard time figuring out who to believe, because all they see is two people slandering each other. And so they just go, this situation just seems like two angry, unreasonable people who are both doing the same thing. It doesn't really matter who started at that point. Most people aren't that discerning and aren't going to spend that much time. They Anybody paying attention is going to recognize pretty quickly that you're the grown-up. I'm not saying say nothing. Nehemiah made it clear that those were lies. But he simply said, that's not true. And then he prayed and he trusted God for the rest. It will weaken your faith if you cannot trust God with your reputation or how other people think of you. If you're constantly needing to prove yourself to others, if you will not not let God be sovereign over your relationships, you'll have a hard time persevering in your faith. Your reputation is among the many things that you need to trust God with. Third challenge to perseverance in faith is being fooled by deception. Three Ds. Distraction, derision, and deception. Nehemiah 6.10. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mahatabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let, me, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said... Nehemiah, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and I saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So now the, 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 the plot against Nehemiah, so extensive that his enemies hired one of Nehemiah's own people to work against him. And I, and I just assume that because... It seems like he's one of Nehemiah's people. He's known to Nehemiah. He was a homebound man, and Nehemiah went to visit him, presumably nearby. Nehemiah already said he had to stay close. So one of Nehemiah's own people is brought in against him. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around you like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Deception is the devil's primary scheme. In John 8, Jesus called the devil the father of lies. He said it's consistent with his character because that's what he's been doing from the beginning. Lying was what led to the first sin among humans in the Garden of Eden. It was the serpent who came twisted the words of god convincing adam and eve that god couldn't be trusted that was the first that's what led to the first sin is the words of god were trusted and the essential lie was god can't be trusted he isn't safe was the lie and that is at the root of every deception and every scheme is that same lie every deception every scheme still boils down to Somebody trying to trick a believer, one who has been redeemed, a person of God, into believing that God can't be trusted with whatever it is. That he's not safe. To persevere in faith, we must believe in the goodness of God. Jesus said that only God is good. He didn't mean that people can't reflect his goodness. People do from time to time. But what Jesus was pointing to when he said God alone is good is he was pointing to a consistency of goodness. A degree of goodness. A type of goodness that can only be found in God. Everybody and everything else won't be good all of the time. And even as good as they can be they'll fall short of a holy standard of goodness but God can. He is the only one who is good all the time. So then how do we persevere in faith in the face of deception? Well, part of it is, is, is spiritual disciplines, like we see Nehemiah practicing. He, he, he prayed. He didn't respond with anger. He trusted God. All of those things are key to persevering in faith, but that's not where I want to leave this I don't want to leave it here as I prepared this and I got to this point, something was unsettling in me in this sermon and it's, I hope it, by the time it's done it won't be unsettling but it should be a little bit unsettling to you when I point it out. If I leave it here, if I just tell you three keys from Nehemiah to persevering in your, in your faith, I haven't actually been doing Christian preaching. This has not been a Christian sermon. Sure, I've mentioned Jesus a couple of times. We even you know, read verses from the Bible, New Testament, Revelation, that kind of thing. But this hasn't been a Christian sermon yet. This bit's for free. Let me just tell you what I mean by this. If you get called away from this place, you get called to move, and you are looking for another church, You have to be careful not just to find a church even that opens the Bible sometimes, even that reads a few verses, gives you, you know, three Ds from Nehemiah for your Christian life and then lets you go. You have to find a church that preaches the glory of Christ as the object of the Christian faith. And here's the problem with what I've done just so far. Here's the problem with three D's from Nehemiah. What Nehemiah did isn't enough. Doing what Nehemiah did won't perfect your faith, and it won't accomplish for you lifelong perseverance. What Nehemiah did will help you. What Nehemiah does will serve you, but it isn't enough to save you. Hebrews 12.2 says we run the race with endurance. It's another way of, of saying persevere in faith. And it says we run the race of endurance not by praying or by being meek in the face of slander, but we run the race with endurance by looking to Jesus because he perfected our faith by dying on the cross, you can't persevere in faith, even if I had a thousand D's for Christian perseverance in faith. I don't have enough within myself, and neither do you, to perfect your own faith, so that one day it becomes sight We need Jesus because we can't persevere in our faith long enough or bold enough or true enough. We need him because he could and he did. And when our faith is put in him, his faith is credited to us. So faith in and of itself, perseverance in faith in and of itself is not the goal of the Christian life. A Christian is not just one who is faithful. A Christian is one who is faithful in and to Jesus, whose faith is rooted and placed in Christ. Only when Jesus is the object of our faith, when he is the end of our faith, when he is all of our faith, will our faith actually matter. There's this weird part of Nehemiah, and I wondered, well, God, wh- what is this? How is this a Christian text? I couldn't wrap my mind around it until late in the week. I, w- I was like, this is a weird plan that this guy Shemiah has. Let's go into the temple, I mean, I, I guess, to barricade ourselves in there, and, and then what? I mean, wh- what is this? Why is he trying to get Nehemiah into the temple? The reason, kind of just hit me, the reason it was the temple is because this plan is is full of distractions, full of derision, it's full of deception. If Nehemiah went into the temple to hide, it would mean he had given up on everything that he had came to do, which was to make the temple To make this, again, in this city, the place where God was to be rightly worshipped. He would have gone into the temple, not for worship, but to save his own skin like a coward who lacked faith. And he would have looked foolish in front of the people he was trying to lead and inspire. And he may have actually ended up dead. Depending on what part of the temple he went into, how far in he went to barricade himself there, God said that there were certain parts of the temple, the innermost parts, where people could only go under certain conditions at certain times. And Nehemiah wasn't one of those people who could go in, and it wasn't yet the right time. And this is what just hit me. This is what just hit me, and when it did, it was just like, Praise God, this is so good. The work around Jerusalem is mostly finished, but it's not done yet. That's what we've been saying. Already, but not yet. And there is a leader, one who exemplifies pretty good faith. But there is one who exemplified a perfect faith. And while Nehemiah wasn't the right man to go into the temple and it wasn't yet the right time, there was a man who would go into the temple with perfect faith and he would go in one day at the right time. And I just I debated how to do this because it's so good. And I think what I just need to do is, is let the word of God just be here for you in this. And so I'm barely going to explain this. I'm just going to read for you a lot of Hebrews 9 just going to read this for you, and I just want you to sit under this and hear what the difference between Nehemiah, this ma- mere man, not being the right time and the right place and the right one to go into the temple, and Jesus, the object and the perfecter of our faith, being the right one. This is Hebrews 9. It says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, and at a temple, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the most holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now in detail. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, read temple, not made with hands, that's not of creation, He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkle of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify them for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God." Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. I could just go on and on. Hebrews is so good. What Nehemiah would have been doing is if he would have went into this temple, he would have been going in to be selfish, to take refuge, and to hide. And because he was a good leader, he recognized that it was not his place and it was not the right time. He was not the leader that we ultimately needed. We needed one who wouldn't go into the temple selfishly, but who would go in selflessly, shedding his own blood as his means of entrance at the right time. Because it wasn't just that Nehemiah wasn't the leader we ultimately needed. It was that his Jerusalem is not the one that will ultimately be our place of worship or where we know God. Nehemiah's Jerusalem is temporary. It's a shadow of things to come. There will be one day where Jesus' Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, where his throne will be, where we will be and we will worship him forever. You need to persevere in your faith. God Does call you to Christian work. He equips you for it, but your faith is perfected by Christ, who goes into the temple, breaks down its walls, and says everybody can come in and so receive the mercy of God. Let's pray. God, may your name be praised as holy, for you have sent your Son into the temple, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, for he was the sacrificial lamb. May he be the object, and so we might know him as perfecter of our faith. Amen. Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building Community, Bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.